I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. My name is Wang. I'm a journalist and former Chinese international student. I'm recording from Garden Gold Country. I'm Mark. I'm a fresh out of uni graduate and a young Chinese Australian. I'm recording from Wurundjeri Country. In each episode, we will explore a theme that reflects the daily life of a young Chinese person living in today's Australia. And today we're talking about learning Zhongwen, Putonghua, Guoyu, whatever you want to call it, learning Chinese, basically. It's probably worth acknowledging before we start that there are lots of different Chinese languages and then like dialects on top of those languages, but today we're talking about Mandarin. Indeed, and I have to confess to you, Mark, I once had a stereotype about you and also our mutual Chinese-Australian friends. I thought that all of you could speak very fluent Chinese plus English, considering the fact that you grew up in such an ideal bilingual environment. And when I say ideal environment, I was referring that all of you could speak Chinese at home and you speak English at school. Yeah, no. So I grew up here after leaving China at the ripe old age of four. And, you know, even though I did speak Chinese at home it and it was a bilingual environment, like technically, yeah, I don't know if it was a very ideal one at all. For starters, I only spoke Chinese, so I didn't like read or write it very much. And even then, only when my mum would like make me. And even when I did speak it, it was only for household or conversational stuff. I think my Chinese never really got better than a native four-year-olds who I think are sort of old enough to communicate and understand what's going on, but don't always have the right words or vocab to say what they want to say. That's actually very interesting because in China, they are really keen to having those sort of bilingual schools. Like one of my cousins, he attended a bilingual kindergarten where they expected kids to learn English at school and then they go back home and speak Chinese with their families. In so doing, they were thinking that the kids could master two languages. I actually studied linguistics at uni, and one thing I learned was that when a kid tried to learn a language, the way they learn the language is very different from what the adult would do. So today, we have some special guests who decide to study Chinese after they finish school education, and their experiences are very interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely curious what it's like to learn Chinese as a young adult Chinese-Australian and whether or not you've been exposed to the language as a kid. Um, I guess more broadly, the central question we're kind of looking at today is for young Chinese-Australians, what can learning Chinese mean to them? And today we have Osman Chiu, who is a research fellow at the Per Capita Think Tank. Thanks for having me on. And we're also joined by Lucy Du, who is the head of community at Bell's Family and Associates. Hi, everyone. Osman, so you started learning Chinese when you turned 30 in 2017. Why did you make this decision? One word probably sums it up, and that word is embarrassment. So a few years earlier, I traveled to China for the first time. And being in China, I felt quite embarrassed as someone with Chinese heritage who couldn't even have a simple conversation in Mandarin. I had to rely on family members to answer on my behalf. 
This was despite you know, going to Chinese school every Saturday as a kid, but I absolutely hated it. I didn't want to be there, so I didn't pay attention at all. So after coming back, I started to think about going back to learn Mandarin, but kept delaying it. And I eventually decided I should just bite the bullet and do it. Yeah, I think the Chinese school story, I'm sure, resonates for a lot of people, right? The sort of being forced to go to Chinese school against your will. <laughs> I wonder, Lucy, do you have a similar or different experience with Chinese? Yeah, I actually never went to Chinese school, funnily enough, but I was homeschooled in Chinese when I was quite young. So similar to you, Mark, I came to Australia when I was about five and a half. And so I actually remember not being able to speak any English. So I was put into ESL class at the start and needing to learn English from scratch, but my mum taught me at home. So we went through kind of the Chinese textbook. That was my real kind of first foray into learning Chinese. And that was a decision that my parents had made to really want me to not lose the Chinese. And for whatever reason, they decided not to send me to school. And perhaps I was just a lot more obedient as a child. And so I just sucked it up and studied my pinyin, the bopo morphos. I um, learned how to count strokes. I'm sure a lot of people remember that, um, to look up characters in the dictionaries. And that was really my kind of introduction to, to Chinese at university or actually at high school. I continued with my Chinese language. So I went to high school in around kind of mid 2000s. And so it was Chinese first language or Chinese second language. And so I was probably much more advanced to be in the second language because I had been homeschooled in Chinese and I was basically up against, you know, people who like Osman and others who had very little kind of background to it. So for me, it was, you know, extra points in my VCE, but you know, did the Chinese. And then at university, I ended up deciding and falling into doing a Chinese major as well after doing exchange um, at Tsinghua University. Okay. I do have some questions to ask to both of you, Osman and Lucy. So one of you go through the Chinese school as a kid. One of you study Chinese as a second language in school. And Lucy, you also like study Chinese language at universities. What are the differences among the courses? What kind of things do they teach? Um, I ended up doing a regular evening class after work. So it was quite a contrast to that sort of Saturday school environment. There was a mix of people, you know, some people had Chinese heritage, others didn't, you know, people of different ages and different levels of language ability. So it was quite a diverse group of people. And it was also funny because in, in some ways I had a completely different attitude to what I had when I was learning it the first time. You know, I did preparation, practiced outside of class, and it was strange because some people in class commented on how good my Chinese was, which felt really weird given the reason why I was doing that class. The one thing I do recall is it felt like I had a bit of a mental muscle memory. So while I was relearning it, I still had some familiarity with the grammar, grammatical structures, how to pronounce pinyin, which I think made it a bit easier. So while I still had to work on my tones and build my vocabulary, in, in that sense, that it made it a bit easier. One thing I did find that sort of changed from when I learned it the first time was writing characters. I just remember 
struggling with writing characters as a kid whereas now you just need to type in the opinion on a keyboard and it makes it so much easier that is exclusively how i text my parents <laughs> it's it's done me such a huge like solid to have that feature Lucy, I guess your experience sounds like it contrasts a little bit with Osman's in that you had an unbroken kind of streak with Chinese learning, right, through the years. But I wonder, like, if there were kind of big jumps in terms of the type of content or, like, the difficulty through those stages? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when I started learning at home with my parents, it was very much about the language. So it was about the pinging, it was about the characters. And I never studied grammar because I just spoke Chinese with my parents. And I remember in high school when I was doing one of those mock exams, I wrote a, a piece. It was, you know, kind of what my weekend was. And the teacher basically said, you know, they knew exactly, they were like, oh, you speak Chinese at home because everything I wrote made grammatical sense, but it just sounded like I was a seven-year-old, which makes sense because I basically kind of capped my Chinese studies at around, you know, kind of level, a seven-year-old level in, in China. At uni, actually in high school, I remember doing a project on Peking duck and the Great Wall of China. That was kind of one of the big research projects that I had to do. And then at university, and especially kind of when I went and did exchange at Tsinghua, I think that's when I had a bit of a, a shock. And things that I learned in Australia was helpful in the sense of the vocabulary. But what I really kind of it really challenged me was the cultural elements of it and that connection. I mean, no one in Beijing really eats Peking duck to start with, you know, they do eat it, but it's not, you know, what everyone eats for dinner, which is kind of what is, you know, implied when you're, you're doing kind of studies about China and Chinese. And it was really when I was doing in-country study that I kind of started understanding the other aspects of, you know, pop culture, learning about artists like Jay Chow and bands like SHE and really kind of been exposed to a lot more real Chinese language and real Chinese studies. How do you find it, Osman? Because you said that the fact that you learn Chinese here in Australia helped you survive in your Beijing trip. Yeah, I mean, uh, so after doing the course, I went to Beijing about like two years later and it was a bit of a different situation where I could sort of navigate and do sort of the basic things like ordering, you know, talking to the tour guides. I did find that when I spoke, they said, oh, you speak in a really formal, old-fashioned way. I guess in a sense, learning it in that formal environment as well as sort of often knowing the words that my mum, for example, would say, like my idea of Chinese seemed to seem to be very time-trapped, that you have a very specific idea of Chinese from a particular time period as opposed to a sort of a living, evolving language. Yeah, I think there's two things there. I think there's different ways of speaking Chinese, I guess, in China as well, right? Because Beijing, I know the way they speak there is very, relies on like abbreviations and short and sharp sentences a lot, whereas I think you tend to be more like polite and whatever in the South. It sounds strange bringing full sentences to Beijing is sort of the feeling that I have. So like maybe there's a bit of that. But also the thing about like your Chinese language being time-trapped, I relate to that a lot. In preparation for this episode, I was also thinking about how like, because the only Chinese I ever speak is with my parents. So, you know, I don't know how my Chinese peers speak the language at all. If you ask me to name a Chinese singer, 
top of mind would be like Teresa Tang, who is from like a whole nother generation compared to like Jay Chow, right? Definitely two generations ahead of you. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but talking about that though, Mark, as your friend who observes your Chinese and also other our Chinese Australian friends, I do notice a thing. You guys usually will pick up your parents' accents. So for example, our mutual friend who is also Chinese Australian, her parents are from Beijing. And when I overheard her calling her parents, I could hear really accurate Beijing accent, like those are those kind of pronunciations. Did you both find out that you pick up your parents' accent when you speak Chinese? I don't know if my parents have a particular accent. My dad's from the north and my mum's from Shanghai. They both spend a lot of time traveling around China. So I think their Mandarin is very neutral, if that can be a way to describe it. But I do notice that perhaps as a second language speaker, I tend to imitate more who I'm speaking with, my accent. So if I was speaking with someone from Beijing, I notice that I get a bit more kind of arhua, like I have the more kind of intonations that a Beijing Mandarin accent will have. And that kind of is reflecting, I kind of tone it down a little bit when I'm speaking to someone perhaps from the South. And I play a lot of badminton with kind of Chinese first language speakers. And someone did make the comment to me that they couldn't tell where I was from in China. I didn't have a distinct accent. It was almost, you know, a melting pot of all, or, you know, kind of in the English speaking world, an international school accent where not really American, but you have this this kind of interesting accent. I'm not sure about myself. No one's really ever commented. I do have this recollection of when we went to China and my mom was ordering in a Beijing restaurant. The waiter had to ask her what she was saying a few times. Uh, so like she grew up in Taiwan. I think that was kind of my first real experience with sort of like accents in Mandarin and how you can be speaking the exact same language, but because of the accent, it could be really hard to understand what the other person is saying. Yeah. Speaking of that, actually, Osman, I do remember when I was in Shanghai living there, if at the start, at least, when my Chinese wasn't, I guess, as fluent as, you know, the, the locals, people would often mistake me to be maybe from Hong Kong or Taiwan because I – and my kind of assumption is that my Chinese was kind of fluent enough to be Chinese, so they weren't assuming that I was Australian, which I took that as a compliment, that my Chinese – all my years of hard Chinese language study was paying off, but it wasn't – quite good enough to be from mainland China. Yeah, I think it's a sort of common thing with learning languages, right? If you're not immersed in a country that speaks the language, you can only get like so good. And then up to a point, you have to kind of go and live among the people that speak the language and who like enact the culture of that place as well to kind of get any further with it. With your experiences of learning Chinese, and especially given that part of learning a language is kind of being able to immerse yourself in the culture, I do wonder if you felt there were any gaps in your Chinese education or if there were things that you missed out on that would have helped with that? I think for me, that cultural element was probably the biggest gap. You know, the pop culture and often the language that kind of new terms and kind of slang terms that exist, you know, either kind of by the internet or through shows that I think always made me more of an outsider. And for me, kind of learning Chinese and or learning any language, it's really to be kind of as immersed in that other culture 
So it's not just about being able to read signs and be able to get around and be able to order food. Like that's great. But there was just that kind of still a little bit of a disconnect that I found because I hadn't studied at all in China. So my kind of Chinese education, the Chinese language education was all for the most part in Australia. And in Australia, a lot of the Chinese that you study, at least I remember from uni, it's kind of translated versions of what you would study in English, which is probably very similar to kind of in reverse Chinese students who are studying English in China and then they come to Australia and I have friends who say this, they realize that they're not fluent at all and they don't understand anything that anyone says and they're confused because they're top of their class in China with English, but it's not just the the language as so much of the cultural stuff. I guess for me, I'm sort of coming from a different perspective where I had been forced to sort of le- try to learn it when I was younger and then distance myself from it for a long time. So I feel for me, I have this like large gap where I'm trying to catch up. So I'm still at the stage where I can have sort of the general conversations. I can read maybe 20 or 30% of characters, but it's probably hard to have a more sophisticated conversation about, you know, politics or arts or culture and i kind of wish you know think reflecting on it i had so it started a bit earlier so i would be a bit further down the track could have those more deeper conversations there's a question i would like to ask lucy further because you kind of mentioned this when you were introducing yourself saying you kind of get misplaced when you study at universities or even higher education because of your background as someone who have been homeschooled in chinese have you ever felt that when you were studying university your level of chinese was actually not that good but because of your chinese background you are put into a more difficult level and you have to just get it just go through it yeah it's funny because no <laughs> actually it was quite the opposite always kind of generally in my life the assumption is if people meet me and i introduce myself in in english that is that i don't speak any chinese or my chinese is quite poor um and i and i don't know if it's because they've met a lot of osmans um in other parts of their life where you know who perhaps their chinese they didn't have the same kind of education as me so you know at university when they were grading me to put me in the class i actually started i, I remember it was a classroom and there were four different tables they kind of just automatically saw me and started me in 1a and you know i opened the mouth and i opened my mouth and said you know, hello and introduce myself and they're like, go to, go to 2A and then you kind of read some text and they kind of keep pushing you along. So for me, it's actually been the opposite in terms of the, the kind of initial assumption that I'm bilingual. It's, all, it's actually, you know, element of surprise. Do you think it's a good thing for you? Yes, probably. Especially when I was living in Shanghai, I thought that definitely you know, kind of came to my advantage. It's always good to, you know, have people kind of share things where they don't know that you can understand for sure. But I think that it really, I guess, challenged me in terms of my identity, in terms of where I kind of fit and how language 
defines who I am. I get it both ways as well. If I introduce myself or someone overhears me having a conversation in Chinese and then I switch to English, I often get the comment, wow, your English is amazing. And then, you know, (laughs) I don't really know how to respond to that. You know, most of the time I just say thank you. But at the start, I, you know, was quite offended about that, you know, um, because it almost questioned for me my Australianness. I feel like that really speaks to like a limit of like multiculturalism in Australia, right? There's this idea that you have to be like one or the other. You're either a Chinese person from China and like, wow, your English is great and surprising. Or you're like an ABC who people are like, oh, you're just like one of us now. You know, you have no connection to China. It's okay if you don't know the language. What are your thoughts on this, Osman? Because I know that several of your works have been involved with looking at this multiculturalism and stuff. Yeah, I mean, linking it back to the experience of learning Chinese and identity, I feel like I've gone full circle. So growing up as a kid in the 90s, you know, I didn't want to learn Mandarin because I felt it made me feel less Australian because I wanted to do, you know, what everyone else, every other kid was doing, you know, play sport on a Saturday afternoon. And I saw being forced to go to Chinese school as a zero-sum game. But I think learning it as an adult, I've kind of moved past a lot of those childhood hang-ups. And I think part of it is understanding the nature of identity and that identity is complex, evolving, and multifaceted. And you can be both Chinese and Australian, but also what it is to be Chinese in Australia is not the same as being Chinese in China. And it's not the same as being Chinese in Singapore or the US. It's different because it is an identity that is a reproduction that's been shaped by your own journeys in life and also the history of a place. The reason why I asked about this sort of misplacement is because in our episode three, when we were discussing the differences between Chinese Americans and Chinese Australians, one of our guests mentioned in Victoria in the VCE Chinese exam. Years ago, there's once a news about Chinese Australians being put into different exams from those who are from non-Chinese background because they want to ensure fairness. They feel that, oh, Chinese Australians, Chinese, they will, they might potentially be better than those who have non-background because of all the advantages they could get at home. And then this comes into a discussion in that episode about the use of Chinese literacy among Chinese Australians. Our guest was saying that she didn't feel that there is a good use of the Chinese literacy of the Chinese Australians at the moment. What are your thoughts on this? I think there's definitely a sense that sort of resources of Chinese Australians are overlooked. As I recall from a few years ago, there was this number that was thrown around. I think it was like 100. They they kept on saying there were only 130 people who could fluently speak Mandarin in Australia, which they're non-Chinese backgrounds. And when you consider there's over 1.2 million Chinese Australians, around 5% of the population, you kind of wonder why aren't we talking about, you know, the million plus people who likely have some foundations that can be built on. If we really care about Asia literacy and building Chinese literacy, you know, there's clearly some low-hanging fruit there that we should focus in on and invest in. I felt the same when I saw those stats One, I thought those numbers should be higher. I think, you know, there's a lot of people from non-Chinese backgrounds who I know who speak incredible Chinese. I feel the same as you, Osmond, in the sense that as a a Chinese Australian who worked really hard to get my Chinese to a certain level, I felt 
it was overlooking, you know, my efforts or people in in that same situation. But I would also reflect to say it's both ways. It's about the Australian government or Australian companies to recognise that there is an opportunity amongst Chinese Australians with the language and the culture. But I also find that many Chinese Australians step away from that identity or being able to leverage the language and the culture. And again, that could be a product of government and corporate Australia, whatever that might be. But I definitely agree with Osman to say that there's a lot of kind of low-hanging fruit and opportunities already in Australia with our existing diaspora that I don't think has been fully utilised. I agree with everything that's been said. I think there's only just like a little sort of complicating thought in my mind, which is just around the other extreme as well, where people kind of are exploitative of young Chinese Australians, right? They kind of put you in that box and they're like, oh, you know, you can speak Chinese, so you can go and do all of this stuff for us that involves China and then not kind of give them work beyond that, for example. And then from our perspective, it can be like, oh, like I don't want to pigeonhole myself professionally in this shoebox as well like I want to show that I can do more so I don't know do you have any feelings about that like it's tricky to say right I agree I think not all people with Chinese language should end up working for as private bankers dealing with Chinese clients for example and I think that's definitely a flaw as a society as a whole that it's not just about China or working with China or Chinese people, if you have the language, it's a lot more. And that China literacy is not necessarily, in my view, just about language. There's, I think, a lot of people who I know who have great Asia or China literacy who may not be able to speak Chinese at all. So one of those challenging situations because it's hard to separate out from the broader geopolitical climate. So there's a challenge whereby there is this emphasis on China and Asia, but people do have a wariness at the same time. And there are situations where people of Chinese heritage who want to work in these spaces often feel like they don't get the opportunities to because there is concern for whatever reason. So I don't think it's like an easy area to work in at the moment. And I don't think there's any easy solutions. I would like to ask both of you to step back and look back to your whole journey of learning Chinese. Both of you are in 30s. My question is, do you find any benefits or advantages of learning a second language as an adult compared to, let's say, learning it as a kid? As I said earlier, there's definitely a different approach between a kid learning a second language and adults learning second language. What's your experience? I think the key difference for me is that I'm learning it on my own terms. It's driven by my own interest and my desire for knowledge rather than feeling like it's imposed on me as some kind of obligation. So I actually want to do it, whereas I think I was a bit recalcitrant as a kid and just was resentful. And because of that, I didn't want to learn or actively seek it out. So whereas now I'm in the exact opposite situation where I actually want to learn more and do more. For me, learning as a child, I just wasn't as perhaps rebellious about it. So I did it, but I didn't really understood what the purpose was. Or I had a very superficial understanding in the sense that, okay, it meant that I can 
speak to my parents. I can speak to my grandparents who couldn't speak any English. That was when I went to China, would be able to read and, and communicate. But then when I was at uni studying it, that purpose was kind of shifting a little bit in the sense that it was kind of the golden era of maybe Australia-China the relationship. So there was a lot of kind of talk about learning an Asian language, learning Chinese and how that would benefit you career wise. And for me personally, I think it definitely has, even though that wasn't particularly my kind of grand plan. But really for me now, and it was really after I spent a lot of time in Shanghai living and working there, being able to speak the language for me as an individual, as a Chinese Australian, means that I can really understand a lot more about my family's identity and that history. And my immediate family are in Australia, but everyone else is pretty much still in China. And to really understand that kind of context is really important for me on a personal level. It really allowed me to make, I think, more deeper and more meaningful connections with the local people. I don't think that's just unique to China, but that's unique to any kind of language um, if you do learn a second language as well. From a professional perspective, my work at the moment and what I previously did had a lot to do with Australia and Asia. And that is very beneficial from a career perspective, not to touch kind of too much on it, but there is kind of opportunities there as well. Do you feel you become more Chinese or more Australian after you go back and relearn the language of Chinese? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I have been told that when I speak Chinese, I'm super Chinese. I don't know what that actually means. Um, I think I have different personas. I, I think I'm still me. I hope I'm still me. My friends can attest to that. But I do tend to adopt more Chinese traits when I speak in Chinese. But I think for myself, having a much deeper understanding of China and Chinese has just allowed me to be a lot more, I think, comfortable as in a Chinese Australian. So it's just helped me and kind of frame my thinking of being Australian in this current context in Australia and how my kind of ethnicity and my heritage plays a role in that. Learning Chinese has definitely enabled me to have a stronger sense of cultural connection. And I know that not knowing Chinese, you have this sense of, you know, am I really legitimately Chinese if all I do is eat the food and sort of celebrate Lunar New Year and those other things? And I do feel that as a result of learning Chinese, it sort of fostered a broader interest in things Chinese more generally, you know, whether it's culture, food, history. So in that sense, I do feel like identity and language are often closely tied together. This is probably in particular for like listeners who might go away from this episode feeling a little bit inspired, a little bit like they want to pick up the Chinese again. But something I think they'd be curious about is what does Chinese look like for you in your day-to-day -day life now? Like how do you make the time to embed it and to like learn it actively as an adult with what I would assume are other obligations in life? I think it's just trying to use it wherever you can in whatever small ways, whether it's just going on Duolingo for a few minutes a day, just trying to type out some Chinese characters to post on like social media. When you're speaking to your parents or relatives, speaking in a hybrid of Chinese and 
English because I think a lot of it is just or even you know going to a restaurant and ordering or, or reading Chinese characters because I think a lot of it is just about trying to continue to use it because if you're not really using it on a regular basis you lose that fluency. Chinese is a very unique language when you talk about second languages and studying it. It's very, very hard. It's incredibly, and I'm sure Osman can attest to this, but even as someone with a really strong foundation, I notice when my Chinese kind of deteriorates or I'm losing vocabulary or I'm not thinking as fast. So I also try and find as many ways possible to practice and not just practice with my parents because most of the time we just discuss what we're having for dinner and how that was made. But luckily for me in my job, I do work with Chinese clients, which means that I do have an opportunity to learn. It's not a 50-50. I'd say it's maybe 20-30%. I play badminton with a lot of Chinese speakers and I do try and make a point to speak Chinese to them. I've actually had a couple of people who speak English to me because their English is fluent, but I do actually say to them that I would prefer if they speak to me in Chinese. So you kind of have to be really tenacious about it, be almost courageous in terms of practicing and finding those opportunities. And it's not just about, I think, the language as well. It's also the pop culture for me. So listening to Chinese songs, watching Chinese TV shows, or even going on Douyin, which is the Chinese equivalent of TikTok, just to kind of surround yourself because being in Australia, it's kind of challenging, right? To be you know, surround yourself with more, I guess, Chinese-ness to vicariously or via osmosis be a bit more part of that culture. And Osman, I know that you also watch popular culture stuff to practice your Chinese. Yeah. What are you watching right now? What do I watch? What did I, well, I watched recently, I think it was Miss S on SBS. So it was, I think, the Chinese version of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Set in oh. Shanghai in the 1920s. Oh, that sounds great. So, like, nice and lighthearted, and I could actually, like, understand, like, half of the dialogue. That actually sounds really interesting. I'm going to go look that up after. A great, like, little cross-platform plug as well for another yes. SBS program. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Our boss will love it. <laughs> Mark, from now on, I'm going to only speak Chinese to you. Oh, my God. That's going to be really, really... You're going to laugh at me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. This episode was hosted by Wing Kuang and Mark Yin. Our sound designer is Max Gosford. Thanks also to Rachel Sibley, Carolyn Gates and Tanya Lee for their support. Follow us or click subscribe to Chinese-ish or find out more on sbs.com.au slash Chinese-ish. That's Chinese hyphen-ish. We look forward to having you there.